You have nothing to do with that. Okay? So you can't boast. Okay? What gender you are, your stature, your hair color, your eye color, your talents, your possessions, even the relationships that are in your life are gifts, really. James 1.17 says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shift in shadow. And today, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you know that it is all of grace. It is all of God that you would have a relationship with Him, for salvation is a gift. And today I want to look at it from a doctrinal perspective, what exactly is biblical grace? What is the grace of God? And what does grace teach us about the nature of God? We all know that God is our creator. He's our maker. And the Bible says that our God, the creator of the universe, is a God of grace. He is by nature gracious. Grace is one of his Attributes. It says in Psalm 112, verse 4, that God is gracious. Joel 2, verse 13, it says he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And 1 Peter 5, 10, he's called the God of all grace. Now in the Old Testament, the word for grace is the word kehen. That's hard to say. If you look at it, C-H-E-N, but you don't pronounce it that way. Earlier I was saying Chen. That's not right. It's Chen. I can't even say it because my mouth is getting dry. But it means this. It means favor. So whenever you see that word in the Hebrew, it, it means favor. And grace in the Old Testament could simply be defined as the favor of God. The God of the universe favoring you. The first example of this word being used in the Old Testament is back in chapter 6 of Genesis. You don't have to turn there. I have a lot of scriptures to cover today, so I'll only have you look at two. But in Genesis chapter 6, we have this great interaction that happens with God and Noah. But before that, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and, and the birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then you have this incredible but Noah found favor. There's our word. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we see, if you go and study this further, we see the grace of God which flows to Noah. He's going to judge the earth with a flood. He says, Noah, I want you to make an ark. Noah doesn't know what an ark is, but nevertheless, he starts building it. God gives him all the dimensions, and he spends years and years and years building something that he's never seen before. And then God, in his great grace, provides a way for Noah and his family to be saved, and they get into the ark. And we see the grace of God working early on in Noah's life. Grace means favor. What does it mean when the holy God 
of the universe looks at you and I with favor. We who are sinners, we who deserve his wrath, and yet we can find grace in the eyes of the Lord thanks to his son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on the cross. You know, the last couple of years during this pandemic, I have learned how to read eyes. Sadly, we've had to become really good about reading the countenances of people and just their eyes because we don't get to see their faces, especially indoors. And so I think I got, I've gotten pretty good when I would walk up and, and interact with somebody that I didn't know. I could kind of tell by the way their eyes were and how they were looking at me that they were looking at me with favor or not very favorably. But the good news is because of what Jesus Christ has done, and if you put your faith in him, the favor of God flows to you and I. That God looks to us with favor, with grace. The second example of that word can being used is in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And this is a prophetic verse that really points to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we have this prophecy that has the grace of God in it, and it's pointing to the future grace of God in the work of His Son on the cross. And God says this, through Zechariah, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, a spirit of favor, and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for only a child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for the firstborn. And the Apostle John picks up this verse in the crucifixion account in John 19, verse 37, and quotes this verse right in the section where Jesus, when he's on the cross, he doesn't have his legs broken because he's already dead, and the soldier, just to make sure, takes a spear and thrusts it into, God, into the Son of God's side, and out came blood and water. And that was a fulfillment of this verse. So we have this spirit of grace or spirit of the favor of God in this prophecy being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And grace is not just a New Testament idea, for God's grace is active from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Let me highlight another storyline, if you will, of real history that shows the grace of God. We need to go back into the garden in Genesis chapter three. We have Adam and Eve who were created perfectly they were right with God, they were, they were holy before God, and they were told not to eat of the tree that was in the middle of the garden, and Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan, and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And immediately, what happened? Their eyes were opened, they realized that they were naked, and the Bible says they, they started uh, sewing together fig leaves, to cover up their nakedness. And then God comes walking into the garden, pursuing them, and Adam and Eve hide. And I believe you have the first example of what I, I think is works righteousness. You have Adam and Eve realizing that they are now not in right standing with God, and because they're not in right standing with God, something is radically wrong with them. They are no longer having, or have this healthy relationship with God, they've been cut off by their sin to the degree that they're trying to hide. So they go and they 
form and sew fig leaves together to try to fix their nakedness. And God, in His grace and in His love and in His mercy, enters into the garden. And while He's in the garden, He is calling out to Adam and to Eve, Where are you? And as He interacts with Adam and Eve, Adam confesses, well, he blames his wife, but then they confess that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God curses at this point. He curses Satan first, he curses the woman in childbearing, and then he curses the man, Adam. And what happens there? In that interaction, we have God proclaiming the first gospel of evil gospel being proclaimed for the first time which is in Genesis 3.15 and God says to Satan and he will bruise you on your head and he will be bruised on his heel and so in that interaction we already see God initiating this grace this favor towards Adam and Eve not only does he pursue Adam and Eve in the garden once he interacts with them he then does something he makes a provision in his grace and in his love, he takes the skins of animals and covers Adam and Eve. For their fig leaves were not sufficient. Their works were not sufficient to fix their problem. It was God who had to kill animals to provide the skins for proper covering. And here we have the grace of God teaching Adam and Eve and mankind that for sin, blood must be spilled. For our sin, there needs to be shedding of blood to pay for that. Either you will pay for your sins, or the Son of God can pay for them on the cross. But nevertheless, God in His grace makes that provision. Moving forward, another example, quickly, out of the Old Testament, is the Exodus and the giving of the Ten Commandments. We have in the Ten Commandments a very, very important verse that often we miss in Exodus chapter 20. And that is the first verse where God proclaims something very profound before he gives the law. And we need to understand that this verse, I believe, is more important than the law. And that is this, that grace came first, salvation came first. He says in verse 1, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and out of the house of slavery. And then he gives the Ten Commandments. So in verse 1, we see the grace of God, the salvation of God, the kindness of God in providing that salvation for the Israelites. And then we have the giving of the law. And this is important to me because I learned something from John's Reformation class and on Martin Luther. Do you realize that Martin Luther would pray the Ten Commandments as a part of his prayer life. And so I'm, I'm going to be like Martin Luther, at least try. And so I'm going to start praying through the Ten Commandments. And I like to go down on Tamarack and run along the boardwalk down there, and I run up to where the power station is, and there's a field up there. And I love to do sprints. As a 51-year-old, I'm trying to maintain speed, so when I play Ultimate Frisbee on Saturday, I can try to outrun these young guys. And yesterday, I, I successfully outran Cameron Molino, who played soccer as a collegian, super fast, and I, I just blew by him. And I just, man, I, these, 
these sprints are paying off. My my speed is is significant until I found out that uh, he actually has three broken bones in one of his feet. So uh, it was not legit my speed there. But I felt good for a couple moments. But uh, so I go up and I do these sprints, and I would do ten sprints. And I would run to one end of the field, and then as I walked back, I would pray, Lord God, may you be the most important person in my life. And then I'd do another sprint. Lord, please reveal the idols of my heart. Show me where I am worshiping other things other than you. And then I'd sprint, and I'd go, oh, Lord, your name is above every name. Oh, Lord, it breaks your heart when people use your name like a cuss word at the gym. Help me to proclaim the gospel to those people. Your name is above every name. And I would do that. And I realized that I forgot what I believe is more important, and that is the grace of God. So now I've added two more sprints, so I try to do 12 now. I start with the grace of God, then I work through the whole tank of average, and then i got to really struggle through the last. But it's grace at the beginning and grace at the end. Now, the Ten Commandments are absolutely very valuable. They, they are a reflection of the nature of God, so they're extremely important. But the Ten Commandments were never given to Israel as a means of salvation, for they've already been saved. The purpose of the Ten Commandments was to reveal God's holiness and to show ultimately that mankind falls short, that we don't meet the standard that God requires. And therefore, the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. The law's purpose was to show us that we don't have, we cannot make it on our own. We need Jesus Christ. And so even with the Ten Commandments and the giving of the Ten Commandments, we see the incredible favor and grace of God. I have a quote here concerning people who were saved in the Old Testament and people that are saved after the birth of or after the birth and, and death of Christ. No one was ever saved other than by grace. From Abel to the present moment, since mankind was banished from the eastward garden, none has ever returned to the divine favor except through the sheer goodness of God. And wherever grace found any man, it was always by Jesus Christ. Grace indeed came by Jesus Christ, but it did not wait for his birth in the manger or his death on the cross before it became operative. Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13:8. The first man in the human history to be reinstated in fellowship or saved and given right relationship with God came through faith in Christ. In olden times, men looked forward to Christ's redeeming work. In later times, they gazed back upon it, but always they came, and they came by grace through we must keep in mind also that grace of the grace of God is infinite, it's eternal, it had no beginning, and will have no end. Concerning the Ten Commandments, I like what my hero Charles Spurgeon says about this. And so when a man becomes a believer, he has come of age, and the schoolmaster's rule is over. He is no longer under his former tutors and governors. For his time of liberty appointed by the Father has come. He is, no under, he is not under the pedagogy of the law any longer, for Christ's work has set him entirely free therefrom. 
Certainly a man who sees the office of the law as a pedagogue ended when he ascertains that Christ has fulfilled it. He says this, I read the Ten Commandments and say, These thundered at me, and I trembled at them. But Christ has kept them. He's kept them for me. He was my representative in every act of his obedient life and his death before God. It is, it is as if I had kept the law, and I stand accepted in the beloved. When Jesus Christ is seen of God, God the Father sees his people in him. And they are justified through Christ's righteousness because they have faith in him. He that believeth in him is not condemned. Oh, is it not a thousand mercies in one that the grand old canons of the law are no longer turned against us? Christ has either spiked them or else turned them on our enemies by fulfilling the law so that they are on our side instead of the law is fulfilled by Christ, which is a grace because we could never fulfill the law. So those are some Old Testament examples of the grace of God. And there's a lot more in the Old Testament for sure. Let's look further into God's grace in the New Testament. The word for grace in the Greek is charis, which means gracefulness, graciousness, and favor as well. Intrinsic, intrinsic to the meaning are the ideas of favor, goodness, and goodwill. So the Father in 1 Peter 5, verse 10, it says he's called the God of grace. The Son in John 1, 14 is called the uh, Son who is full of grace and of truth. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of grace in Hebrews 10, 29. Let me give you a working definition for grace. You can write this down. Grace is the active favor of God towards sinners who are undeserving. Grace is the active favor of God towards sinners like you and me who are undeserving. It is the favor of God bestowed on sinners who don't deserve it. We deserve His wrath. It's kindness to the undeserving. It's doing good to a stranger. It's a kind act that benefits His enemies. God's grace actively loves sinners like you and me. For he is gracious and unto the undeserving. He freely chooses to love us, and he's uninfluenced by that. Tozer says that grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits to the undeserving. So to help clarify what grace is, let me contrast it with mercy. In the Bible, mercy and grace are linked. They're like two twin brothers. But they're not identical twins. When you ask for help from one, the other comes along as well. One author said this, In God, mercy and grace are one. But as they reach us, they are seen as two. Related, but they're not identical. Mercy can be defined this way. It's not getting what you do deserve. It's not getting what you do deserve. As a sinner, you deserve the wrath of God. You deserve punishment for your sins before a holy God. But mercy is not getting that punishment. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. We don't deserve God's favor. We don't deserve His love. We don't deserve His forgiveness. We are sinners, and yet He is gracious to us. 
Let me illustrate the two in one story that happened in my life. As a teenager, when I first took interest in Jill, and we started dating at late high school, don't recommend it until after you get into college, young people. Uh, for dating is to help you find a spouse. That's the way I view it now, but at the time I didn't. But nevertheless, me and a buddy decided to do something really fun. Let's go TV Jill's house, okay? But we're not going to be like the typical, uh, you know, people that go maybe at midnight or one in the morning. We're going to do something more dangerous. We're going to go while they're still awake. We're going to do it at 9 o'clock. If we can find a way to completely TV this house while they are all awake, that's going to be amazing. What an amazing thing that we did. And so we decided to do this, and we were just taking these toilet paper. The lights are on in the house, yet it's still dark, and we're just chucking these over, filling the trees up, and uh, having a great old time, periodically running away because we're like, did somebody look through the window? And uh, halfway through it, the police showed up. <laughs> so clearly the neighbors decided to call, I would assume, and the, the police car rolled up with his lights on, but no siren, and they got out, and they made me and my buddy sit down on the curb, and then they went to the front door, and they knocked on the door, and George, my future father-in-law, <laughs> answered the door, and they said, Sir, are you aware that these young men are out here vandalizing your home <laughs> with toilet paper? Uh, how dare they? They have to cut down trees for those toilet paper. Anyways, uh, we didn't get into that. But, so nevertheless, the, the, the police officer walks me up to, to George at the doorway, and George says, Jonathan, how's it going? <laughs> Why don't you boys come in here and have some ice cream? And uh, sure enough, right in that moment, two things happened. George showed mercy. He obviously we did wrong, but he didn't tell us to clean up the, the property. He just welcomed us into his house. And then when he welcomed us into his house, he lavished us with ice cream. And boy, the police officers were not really excited about that. <laughs> I know that's facetious, I know it's kind of funny, but you know, the mercy of God is very, very significant. The fact that he does not give us what we are due. We are due his punishment because of our sin. Yet he is merciful. And then not only does he show mercy, but he shows amazing grace and kindness and lavishes us with his love and his forgiveness. Let me bring, give you a little bit more uh, definition, more clarity to grace. You can write this down. Number one, God's grace is free. It is free to the sinner. Romans 3.24 says this, We are justified or made right. We sinners are justified freely by His grace. God's grace costs you nothing. But it cost him his son, who had to die to purchase our redemption. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 3.23 and 24 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. 
God's grace is free. By nature, it is free because it's best described as a gift. And God is not a God who is stingy. He is a God that lavishes us with his favor and kindness and goodness. One theologian defines it this way. He gives nothing but the best freely to benefit the undeserving, to pity the wretched, to spare the guilty. He welcomes the outcast. God's free grace brings into favor his enemies like you and me. God's grace is amazing. It's free to the sinner. The second idea, number two, would be that God's grace cannot be earned. And I know that some of you are thinking, well, that's kind of the same thing. Well, uh, repetition is very, very important for us, especially since we are given to works righteousness. We are like Adam and Eve. We are constantly, even as believers, we are trying to find ways to earn God's favor and to please Him. It's just built into our fallenness that we would want to try to earn God's love, earn God's forgiveness, earn His favor, try to produce and, and, and find a way to draw God in to where God can show His favor and love, almost influence it, if you will. It's our nature to work. When we are born, we want to please our parents. And oftentimes in our parenting, we create kind of a, a, an environment in which the children feel like they have to perform to please. In sports, you have to work hard so that you can win a game and then win the game so you can get a trophy. Except in these days, everybody gets trophies even before the game starts. So that's, that falls short. But nevertheless, there's this idea. If I work hard, then I earn. Okay? If I go into, uh, into education and I want to be successful and I'll be a good student, I'm going to work really hard and, know, and study and perform so that I can get good grades. In the business world, I must work hard so that I can earn. And it's wired into our DNA that we feel... We have to do something to earn God's love and His favor. And grace basically shatters that. It just completely destroys it. And that's why I need you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 so that we can look at this intently. It's a very, uh, very important passage that we should know well as it relates to this idea that God's grace cannot be earned. I'll start in, in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit of disobedience, which is now, and the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. The Bible says, here in this section, through the Apostle Paul, that every person is dead to God because of their sins. Because of our sins, we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And I remember flipping through the channels on TV one night, and I came across this show called Gangland, and they had a live television crew down in Compton, and they were following these gang members. And at the beginning of the show, they had the head of the gang, and he was speaking and describing his lifestyle and what they do. And I, I got bored, I don't know why, but I changed channels and went to check scores or something. 
And then for whatever reason, I came back to the show, and sadly at the end of the show, that very gang leader was killed. He was killed. And the scene was his funeral. And in the center of the room at the funeral was his casket, which was open, and his family was coming by. And I remember his mother just wailing, just out of control, weeping for the loss of her son. And the other family members were crying as well as they were coming by and looking in the casket. I'll never forget his little three-year-old son got up on a stool and he peered into the casket and he started saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And he looks at his mom and says, Mommy, why isn't Daddy talking? Daddy's not, wake him up, Mommy. And my heart just was just so sad for that young little boy seeing his father killed. And it reminded me that image there of the unresponsive father, the inability for the father to communicate with his son is exactly what the Bible is teaching about you and I, that we are dead to God. We have no way to communicate with God on our own. We have been cut off, if you will, because of our sins. But look what it says here in verse 4. But God... Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it was God that made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. By the favor of God you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace. In other words, God lavishes us with forgiveness and grace. He makes us alive so that we can have a relationship with Him. And then God will give us grace for all eternity. And it will be immeasurable. The joy that is coming because of the work of Christ. And it's all because God has pursued me, the sinner. And He made me alive. And for many of you in this room, He's made you alive. In his kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. Remember you were dead. It is a gift of God. If there's one thing I can want you to walk out of this place. As a Christian. Just remember my salvation isn't up to me. I had nothing to do with it. It's God's gift lavished upon me. And therefore, I can go out and live for him. It won't be perfect, but it doesn't matter. I have Jesus, and he's favored me in his work and his life. So grace cannot be earned. One preacher said this, religion could be defined like this. I obey, and therefore I'm accepted. I do, I perform, and now God owes me. That's religion. But Christianity is different. I'm accepted in Jesus Christ based on what he did, his perfect life, his death and his resurrection. And because of that, now I want to obey. It's totally different. It's not works righteousness. It's not religiosity. It's a relationship trusting in the work that Jesus did. Romans 11 verse 6. Salvation is by grace. It is not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Grace can neither be bought 
earned or won by man. Now I can't imagine a child on Christmas morning, there are several gifts for the child all wrapped up, and you say, here, these are for you. These are gifts for you. And the child just takes them and holds on to them, never opens them, just looks at them. That, that falls short. Something's not right there. It's not enough to just know that salvation is a gift. It needs to go from your head into your heart. You need to understand that there is no way to pay for a gift, otherwise it's no longer a gift. And God has lavished us with the gift of salvation in His Son. God is so gracious and so good. Third point, grace is greater than all our sin. It's greater than all our sin. I have to take you to Romans here. Romans chapter 5. Please turn to Romans chapter 5. This is such a great, great text on the nature of the work of Adam and what he accomplished and then the work of the greater and better Adam, Jesus Christ, and what he accomplished. Okay, so we'll just tackle this real quick. We're on the back end now. We're, we're getting ready to land the plane. But this is such an important part. Do not miss this. Do not miss this section. Romans chapter 5. Alright, first of all. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Here we go. Here's our, our grace language now. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam is being compared to Christ. Let's just look at this real briefly. Adam was a human being that was created in Genesis 1. He was our federal head. He's the head of the whole human race. You can trace your lineage back to Adam and Eve. What was the great work that Adam did? Unfortunately, he was tempted and he sinned. There was a trespass. And now by nature, he has become disobedient and by nature sinful. 
And his actual sin was he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was the result of his work? Well, it was death, spiritual death. Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 2. All men are now going to die spiritually. They're, they're born dead to God, if you will, because of our sin nature. What's another result of his work? All people will die. It's one of the reasons why I became a believer in Jesus Christ, is because the Bible answered the death problem. Why do people die? It's because of sin. And it's because of Adam. And then eternal death, the second death, was a result of Adam's sin. What was the power of that work? In verse 17, it says that death reigns now. What did it produce? It produced condemnation and judgment. Our legal status because of Adam and his sin nature being passed down to us, we are now legally before God, guilty because of our sins. And what was the scope of Adam's work? All have become sinners. All have sinned. All will that's terrible news, but it's the truth. Here's the good news. Jesus in the same text is being compared to Adam. He's the greater and better Adam. Jesus wasn't just a human, though he was 100% human. He was also God, the creator, the head of the church. What was his great work? His great work was his perfect life of 33 years, never sitting once, upholding the Ten Commandments perfectly. Then he went to the cross and died for our sins and paid our punishment, and then he rose from the dead. He lived that perfect life that you should have lived, and he died on the cross that you and I should die for our sins. What was the result of his work? In Adam it was death. In Christ it's life abundant. We are now alive to God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. What about physical death? Well, Jesus rose from the dead, and we're going to rise from the dead. What about eternal life and eternal death? We get eternal life in Jesus Christ because of what he did. What was the power of his work? He conquered death, 1 Corinthians 15. What, what did it produce? It produced forgiveness. It produced perfection for us who are sinners. We get the righteousness of Christ. What's our legal status now in Jesus? Righteous, not guilty. And what's the scope? All who believe in Christ will be saved. All who put their faith in Christ and His work will be saved. Grace wins because Jesus won. Grace wins because Jesus won for us. How amazing is His grace. Grace is greater than all of our sin. I know that there are some in this room that feel so guilty. You think about the sins that you've done, you would never let anybody know how awful they are if anybody found out. But you know what? God knows. And God still can look at you with eyes of favor if you would turn from those sins. If you would confess those. You say, well, I'm such a... There's no way God can forgive me for what I've done. The Bible says His grace is greater. I'll give you just an illustration. The Buena Vista watershed that is in Oceanside, that flows into the ocean, it's like a lagoon. If you catch the wind blowing off of that lagoon, there's a stench, right? It smells bad. And after a, a rainstorm, all the junk that flows in there, it's, it's basically a polluted watershed after a storm. 
And you can see that body of water and you say, instead, that's like my life. My life is so full of sin. It's awful. It's a lot of sin I've committed. I've done amazingly horrible, awful things. There's no way God's mercy could flow to me. Well, the Bible is teaching us in Romans chapter 5 that though that lagoon is a large body of water, God's grace is like the ocean in comparison. That God's grace is so abundant that there's no way, God forbid, that you would try to outsin His grace. There's no sin that's too great for God's grace to be forgiven, His forgiveness to be offered to you. God's grace is greater than your sin. Let me read this one quote from a commentator. In Adam's case, a single sin was involved, and that was sufficient to condemn the whole human race. One act polluted the whole human race. But in the work of Christ, a provision is found for many acts of sin, or a lifetime of sin, to all who believe. The work of Christ not merely canceled the effects of sin so as to put man back into a state of innocence, but rather gives man far more than he lost in Adam. So in Adam, we have this incredible debt. Jesus forgives us of that debt, and then he lavishes us with his righteousness, right? The gift prompted by grace lavishes us with righteousness, holiness, peace, and eternal life. Grace, grace, God's grace, greater than all my sin. It's amazing. It's amazing, God's grace. Last, it must be received by faith. God's grace is a gift that must be received by faith. Romans 5.17, that same text. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. John 1 verse 12, but as many as received Christ, but as many as received him, not religion, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God who believe in his name. So how do I receive this grace? Well, it's as simple as a look. You look outside of yourself, you turn away from yourself and your sins, and you look to Christ. You look to Him. Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me and be saved, all ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no other. Look unto me. Faith is like looking to Christ and trusting in him. I'll never forget going to the Master's University. At the time, it was L.A. Baptist College. I think I was 12. And my dad would take me and my siblings, or four of us, to the pool. And my dad was very much like John Rourke, very Rourkean. He brought a really thick book with him, and he'd sit off into the sun and just read, read, read. we just have a ball in the pool. And I'll never forget playing with my sister and my middle brother, and then all of a sudden going, where is Stephen, my little three-year-old brother? And I'm looking around the pool area, and I don't see Stephen. Dad's off reading, he's like in a deep, either historic history book or political book. I don't find Stephen. And I get up and I run along the side of the pool, and there he is. And I see him about eight feet down, bubbles coming out of his mouth, 
and he's looking up at me, and his eyes were this big. And I could just read his eyes saying, Brother, save me. Brother, I'm helpless. I'm drowning. Like they were eyes of terror. I'll never forget it. And I dove down, and I became the hero that I am today. I'm the Savior of the world. And uh, I don't even think my dad moved. I just think he looked over and said, Oh, everything looks fine, and goes back to reading. But, uh, but it's those eyes. Like my little brother saying, I can't help myself. Somebody help me. That's what you do. You say, I cannot fix my problem, Lord. There's a lot of sin. I'm a sinner. I need you. And it's a look unto him. It's also a cry. You cry for help. You just cry out to the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Uh, you are God. You're holy. I want your forgiveness. I want to have a relationship with you. And it's also a clean. It can be like a clean. Clean to Jesus. Clean to him at the cross. Believe he lived for you, died for you, and rose again for you. And if you're here today and you're a believer, I pray that you wash, walk out of here just with a heart of worship, just so grateful that God looks at you with favor because of what Jesus did for you. Cherish the Lord for his kindness that has led you to repentance. Praise the Lord that in Christ you have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And lastly, I pray that you would tell the world of his amazing grace, which flows freely to the sinner, freely to you and me. And we need to tell those who don't know Christ. Lord, thank you so much for just a simple reminder of your amazing grace. Thank you, Lord, that it's free to us. It costs us nothing. You who have no money, come by and eat. You who have no money, come and die. Lord, thank you that we are not under a slave, a yoke of slavery, that we have to work to try to achieve your favor and your love, but it flows to us in the work of your Son. Thank you that your grace is far greater than our sin. And thank you, Lord, that we can have a relationship by receiving your grace and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and praise you. Amen.